In partnership with Paizo, the No Direction Network welcomes you to our Gen Con online seminar coverage. Welcome to Behind the Pages with developer Ron Lundin. I'm Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param from No Direction. I'm joined by Vanessa Hoskins. Hey there. Also from No Direction and Ron Lundin from Paizo. Hey, Ron. Hello. Excellent. We're here to talk with Ron about some amazing adventures that they just started talking about, including one that I really want to get my hands on. Um, oh. Yes, yes, very much, very much. I, I am excited ever since I heard you all announce and talk about this stuff over at PazoCon. Um, also, Ron Lundin, you joined us over at No Direction as well. And for those of you who do not know who we are over here at No Direction, we are helping, you know, Paizo get this whole stream thing done. We're working with their team. We're working with Peyton, who is amazing and wonderful to work with, uh, to bring you all this constant coverage throughout all of Gen Con. And it has been a blast. If you want to uh, follow some more of our content, you can do so over at NoDirectionPodcast.com. We have new we have new content up every single day. We're mostly Paizo focused, but also, you know, general geeky stuff that any good Paizo fan should also enjoy. But Ron, you all just yes. got done talking about all of the adventure paths that you all have announced coming up for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And Pathfinder 2nd Edition already has a few more than normal adventure paths announced and under its belt compared to, you know, what we're used to. So can we just run down, like, what we have to look forward to going forward. Sure, sure. Um, in addition to the adventure paths that we've already gotten out, which is the Age of Ashes adventure path, which kicked off second edition, and then Extinction Curse, which is the last volume of which is just, just came out. Uh, the next one is the uh, uh, Agents of Edgewatch is the next one, the one that is just kicking off this month. And after that, we've got two three-part adventure paths, um, which actually dovetail nicely together. The first of which is a three-part mega dungeon adventure path called Abomination Vaults. And then following that is a three-part uh, fighting tournament adventure path called Fists of the Ruby Phoenix. Uh, so we've got, <laughs> so we've got, they're thematically very different, but we know mm -hmm. that people like, and we've already established with two, the two prior adventure paths that we're giving you adventure path content to take your characters from just starting all the way up to 20th level. And we wanted to make sure, even though we were breaking up into two three-part adventure paths, that it, and they were two different, very different stories we're telling, it was consistent enough to be able to have people take their first level characters through the dungeon, out of the dungeon, onto the world stage, and uh, eventually um, doing the great deeds in the Fists of the Ruby Phoenix. I, mean, I know I'm excited about playing that one. As soon as that comes out, I am looking for a group. So anyone out there who's throwing a group together, let me know. Because uh, as everyone knows, I love me some punch girls, and I got to play one in Fist of the Ruby Phoenix. There is, I will tell you, it's some of the, I mean, we're, we're behind the pages, right? So some of the, some of the work behind the adventure paths goes into this. One thing that has been fairly typical up through, uh, since I joined Paizo three years ago, is that we've got a developer who's focused on the adventure material in the adventure path, and then another developer who works on all the stuff in the back, all the articles, the new, the bestiary, that kind of stuff. And so we've got two developers that sort of tackle 
the adventure paths. Um, cool. That's the way. That's the way Extinction Curse worked. I was running the main adventures while Patrick was working with the Back Matter Agents of Edgewatch. Patrick was running the adventures while I was working the Back Matter. We've taken this opportunity to shift that, and so Abomination Vaults. I am developing cover to cover Fists of the Ruby Phoenix. Patrick's developing cover to cover. What that lets us do is absolutely every word in between the covers can help support the adventure. If we've got mm -hmm. a new monster, for example, I know exactly what they are. And so I know exactly how they might fit into the adventure. Gotcha. Um, in, in this case, we've had all of the authors who wrote the adventure also wrote all the monsters. So they've done a lot of that work on the front end. Um, but it's a, it's a model that seems to be working very well for us. I think the only, the only point of weakness, which, which I think I actually think is a, can be a strength for me personally, is I don't know very much about Fists of the Ruby Phoenix because I'm not working on either the front or the back of it, but that sure. means I could, I could play it. Right? That's true. <laughs> now, one of the, the changes I think you also made that I'm curious if you're going to move forward with is having the back matter, that adventure toolbox also written by the author of the adventure path. So that way it's sort of seamless. Do you feel that that was successful? Do you think that's something you'll continue? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. Um, there is a there is a general sense, a general attitude that all of the rules in the toolbox, which mm -hmm. means all the new rules, if there's a new archetype, uh, all the new monsters, should appear or be accessible somewhere in the adventure. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that requires a little bit of uh, connection between the adventure and the toolbox writers to get that to work. So mm -hmm. it's easier when we have the actual adventure author do that. And we assign that to the adventure author. author. That said, there are adventure authors, um, and I've been working with a couple for the up upcoming unannounced Adventure Path stuff, where they their real strength is in storytelling. And given the, you know, oh, on top of that, give us six rules-dense pages of very crunchy material. They're like, can I... Can I, can I not? <laughs> it's like, well, yes, you can not, but you still have to give me a sense of what, what types of rules might fit in with the adventure so mm -hmm. that I can get somebody else to write that and then get it to mesh. That's a little more work on our end. And I worry that the final product might not seem as fully integrated. Um, but some things are easier to integrate than others. For example, if you've got a bunch of new, new items, then you just seed those items as treasure. If you've got a new archetype, then you've got to work a little more about, all right, well, who do they learn this from and how do they learn the techniques? And that, that becomes something that requires a little, a little tighter, uh, tighter deal. Right. Uh, from chat, Rover Combat suggests that you and I start forming a Fist of the Ruby Phoenix group since neither of us know any of the content that's in there and both of us really want to play it. All righty, that's, that's that a great cool. idea. I want to play. I want to be a kung fu. What's the puppy people called again? Shunies. Shunies. Yes, I want to be a kung fu shuni. Kung fu shuni. Oh. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> See, we've already got three out of four members of a party already. It'll be uh, be no problem. <laughs> No, and honestly, I think I, I would really love to see what starting an actual longer term campaign would be. And, and a lot of people are going to get that chance with Fist of the Ruby Phoenix at mm -hmm. jumping into PF2 at higher level. Because PF2, one of the things that it has touted when it was, you know, being pitched is that it handles high level play a lot easier than PF1 handles 
that amount of high level Pele because a whole lot of the game is sort of similar. It doesn't it doesn't have the, the same bloat of action economy that the game gets when you start to uh do the the uh the traditional uh path under one combats right. at uh at you know level 14 plus is that yeah, something you think those. is true yeah mm -hmm. um, well i definitely do i think one of the things i really like about being a uh adventure developer is the toolbox of things that can affect the game and the the rules is consistent throughout you know being being clumsy one, for example, something that makes you clumsy one is a little bit of an irritating hindrance at low levels. What is also a little bit of an irritating <laughs> hindrance at high levels? It communicates mm -hmm. the same thing. Yeah, I think one of the things that's important is when you come into a first level adventure, backgrounds are all about what did I do before I picked up a weapon or a spell book and decided to go be an adventurer. When you're talking higher level play, the question is, what great things did we do before now? And that's a, it's a different question. And the, the, the key hinge of that question is, what did, what did we do? The, if you put in with the assumption of these are all people who've been adventuring together off screen from first to 10th level, what awesome things do they bring to the table? What synergies do they bring to the table? What's their sort of group, group background, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, before they jump into a higher level game? Well, and, and you get to flesh out really your builds too. So I, even though Pathfinder 2nd Edition is fantastic about giving you your like a working effective build as soon as possible, and I would put that as soon as possible being usually level two because you can get your first archetype in there. Uh, even though it's great at that, uh, the thing is like, there's still like, I really want to get this ability or I really need, you know, I really won't feel like my character concept works uh, until I can get my ninth level ancestry ability and really tie it all together or whatever it is that works for your character. Starting at 11th level, that's a lot of power and a lot of planning and you can have a really well put together cohesive character and as a group building it together, cohesive group, uh, there's really just like, we've trained, we're ready bring us to the tournament. I think that's really cool being able to start at that level. Right. And me and UV, we did a, a high level play test of PF2 mm -hmm. uh, a few months ago on the network and we built like brand new characters none of us ever played before, pretty complicated ones. Yeah. And we were able to just jump right in and, and you know, the system was only out for like a month or so and we sure. were able to just jump right in hit the ground running like it was nothing like we didn't have any stalls or 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 really any delays in in the action we were just like going straight into combat straight into combat and they were really complicated beasties because ryan was running it and he doesn't know how to do anything simple when it comes to a, a boss encounter <laughs> that is true well, if the system's brand new then okay we've got to stop while i look up how ray of frost works is is functionally the same as okay we've got to stop so i can look up how disintegrate works so <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the best parts um, is how second edition has simplified things to a point where even like Disintegrate is definitely a slightly more complex spell than Ray of Frost, but not really that much more complicated. Uh, I think at first edition, we had a lot of barriers to entry on high level because there were a lot of contingency spells and things like that that sort of stacked on top of each other in strange ways. And because of how clean the Pathfinder 2nd Edition system is, that's significantly less likely to happen. Yeah. I mean, I wrote the, just to talk about complex spells, like I wrote the uh, the spell, those spell cards for 1st Edition uh, the, mm -hmm. and 
There were some spells that I had to spread across five cards front and back in order just to fit the text on there without, and, and, and that is if they chose the full text option. They could have just said page reference for those crazy ones. Um, I, and I'm looking at your all spell deck. Uh, thank you all for making that. Um, <laughs> so I don't have to. Uh, and there's not any of those in there. We do. We have a couple. If you look, you'll find a couple where we have mm. to refer specifically back to the rules just right, because but... they've got a lot of complicated stuff. But but yeah, we we actually, part of the design for, I mean, not just spells, but certain mm. rules generally is, all right, what is the what is the essence of this thing? What's it trying to do? Get it to do that without mm-hmm. a lot of other sort of, you know, contingencies or yes ands and so on throughout. Mm-hmm. So... So before we go off of uh, Ruby Phoenix talk, are we going to see, you talked about in the panel that we might see some familiar faces from the original venture, but we had a whole year of the Ruby Phoenix. One of my absolute favorite seasons for Pathfinder Society, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, are we going to see any uh, any familiar faces that Pathfinder Society fans might be familiar with or maybe fans of Masters of Devils? I, I don't know. He doesn't a, know. He didn't know, work on the, the Ruby Phoenix is the Patrick uh, uh. Patrick work, and I don't remember specifically whether Patrick had been in organized play at that time. Here's a funny thing about the way organized play impacts. If I personally was either playing or writing for a particular season of the organized play, I've got a lot of it in my head, and so I know to think about it and then sort of put it out mm-hmm. right. So if I've got, if I happen to be playing when there was a lot of the adventures that the Pathfinder Society went to the world wound, if I'm doing anything that touches on the world wound, I'll be able to say, you know what, I kind of remember what the Pathfinder Society did there. And we can always do a little bit of research and that's part of that due diligence is part of our job, but you're a lot more likely to have those connections come into play if Mm -hmm. you've got a uh, uh, sort of that background in your head. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that is actually kind of fun about doing the type of work that goes a little bit off the map or into areas where an adventure path goes into an area that we haven't seen before is finding out what the what organized play may have done there because there's i mean they've often done something right when we were putting together the town of otari as the starting Mm -hmm. point and that was going to be consistently for the for the beginner box for the modules for this adventure path and have a lot of different touchstones there like, all right, well, it's been just this map dot. So now we can really expand it and explore it in a way. Oh, Pathfinder Society had an adventure set there, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it was a, just very briefly, it was a quick stop, but our research let us know, oh, there, there, there is a thing that has been done there. And so we've, uh, we've worked that in. Mm-hmm. So let's go, let's flip the script then and go from high level adventures in, in, across the, uh, the literal world from Absalom to... The very beginning adventure in Ataro or uh, Atari, Otari, or, or tar, Otari. Think like, of like an Otari, but with an O. So I'll get I, it right if I say that there are troubles there first. But there are uh, troubles in Otari. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, I was yes. really pushing for the population of Otari to be exactly twenty six hundred people, but that didn't. <laughs> I would have. I would have loved it. I would have loved it. So tell us about Abomination Vaults, because actually, as as hype as I am for Ruby Phoenix, it's, it's kind of Abomination Vault is the one I'm really, really uh, hoping to get my hands on soonest. Well, this is this is this has been really exciting, and and part of the the thing that I want to talk about behind the pages is the design of the dungeon. That's where the bulk of the adventure takes place. 
And so the way we set this up uh, is the adventure path spans 10 levels. The dungeon also spans 10 levels. And so if you're on the fifth level of the dungeon, you are facing challenges that are appropriate for fifth level characters. If you're on the eighth level of the dungeon, you're facing challenges appropriate for eighth level characters. There's, there's little to stop you from going up and down between the different levels. Um, sometimes you've got to either you know unlock a certain thing or make an or arrangement with somebody to get past something. That There are some sort of blocks in between the adventures. That is to say the first adventure... Ruins of Gauntlet by James Jacobs goes first through fourth level, and it is the first through fourth levels of the dungeon. Then you've got to do a thing to access the lower levels, and then you've got the Hands of the Devil mm-hmm. by Vanessa Hoskins, which is the fifth through seventh level characters in the fifth mm-hmm. through seventh levels of the dungeon. Um, here, here, one of the things that we, what, it's it's very easy to get way in over your head intentionally, right? So for the first Absolutely. four levels, it's like, all right, well, we're on the surface ruins and now we're going down just a little bit and maybe we're going down you know we found these other stairs to go down a little more than that when you get to the the hands of the devil you you make your way through the barrier okay now we can access the lower levels and there's this huge spiral staircase that goes all the way down and we can you can be as like brand new fifth level characters you can you know, fight your way down through a couple of fights to get to the stuff that's supposed to be a severely difficult encounter for seventh level characters. Mm-hmm. So part of the dungeon experience is players being able to get in way over their heads. And this is the adventure where way over your heads is very possible. Yeah, I remember writing the different, you know, level transitions where there's, you know, a staircase leading down or whatnot, and trying to keep in mind as best I could, that they might want to peek down here and get themselves into some trouble so the fights that are there need to be on the easier side just to ease them in and remind them like this is higher level play than you might be uh and that way they didn't i go down the stairs and there's a severe level encounter that's (laughs) exactly so i I hope that the ap or at least the player's guide for it comes with a printout that i can put on my uh the the players facing side of my gm screen that says running is always an option because <laughs> I have to remind them, they think that every fight is one they have to do to the death. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's actually one of because this is an adventure path that's set in the same location as the beginner box. We are mm-hmm. well aware that this adventure path might be the very first one that people play after having picked up the beginner box and wanting to yeah. be able to tell a much longer story. So yeah. it's not it's not a super it's not, it's not an easy adventure path. It's not a simple adventure path. But what it does is it intentionally teaches some of the lessons that players may not have internalized if they're new to the game. Running being an option is absolutely one of those things that we want to make sure to teach people. Um, one of the other things that we want to teach is that things get sort of broader the more abilities you have and the more levels that you have. So the top few levels of the Abomination Vaults are tend to be a little more constrained physically and then when you get to the last adventure eyes of empty death by Stephen randy mcfarland those bottom three levels just sprawl and it is you know you got one natural cavern after another and you've got different Mm -hmm. factions going against each other um and so the fact that you really feel like this is a huge underground sort of you know playground to be in is 
is the feel that we we sort of get and sort of widening the terrain that you're on. Mm -hmm. One thing we wanted to make sure of is that all of the dungeon levels, even though there were three separate authors, all, all of the dungeon who are built by the same, because they're built by the same person in the game, have the same look on the, the table. So we commissioned the same person to draw all 10 of the dungeon levels. And so the authors were like, all right, here is your levels. And here's some very light notes about kind of what, I mean, this, this level is called the prison, you know, you, it's up to you to say why, and you mm -hmm. know, you know, what, what types of other things might be imprisoned there and so on. So we had some, some light guidance down, but this is the first time we've given an exceptionally thorough maps to our adventure authors. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but what that does ultimately, we hope, is make sure everything is kind of a, uh, a real cohesive whole. I've actually just gotten back. My, my Monday task at work is to be reviewing the first four final maps that have come in from the cartographer, not just to make mm -hmm. sure they match the location in James Jacobs' first adventure, but to make sure that they're giving that consistent look that will, mm -hmm. that will then be carrying all the way through the rest of them. So if I were to grab myself a beginner box, grab Troubles in Atari, and get this adventure path ready to go and, and was like very out of character and read all of it well in advance, uh, <laughs> could they have a, could a party enjoy all of that at once? Um, yes. Yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. Let me tell you. If you just picked up the adventure path, Mm -hmm. And nothing else can a party in, in, enjoy all of it. You know, maybe not. Maybe it's it's kind of too much stuff for even one party to go through. So you absolutely will be able to weave a lot together. But if you want the same players to go through the beginner box, which will get you to second level, then troubles in Otari, which will get you all the way to fifth level, and then try to tackle the adventure path, which is first through eleven, first or tenth. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just going to be more stuff than you can actually sort of do at your table. That's actually by design, that's an advantage because it means that your players feel like they've got a lot more ability to go and do a lot of different things. I think there's absolutely a place for the kind of table where it is presented like, okay, this is the beginner box. We have gone through, we've done the adventure in the beginner box. We fought these little kobolds under town and they're a little <laughs> Warren and, and uh, the, the, um, all right, well, now we've heard that this light, weird lighthouse is glowing. What's all that about? Let's go over to the abomination vaults. And in the course of going back and forth, they hear, oh, this person from the, the local delivery company has had a, uh, a courier that's supposed to have returned and hasn't. Maybe we need to find out about that. And that's one of the, one of the three uh, adventures and troubles in Otari. You mm -hmm. absolutely could weave all that together, but nobody is going to be able to weave it all together in the same way just because there's so much stuff. And that's, yeah. yeah, it's kind of awesome. One of, one of the, I can be specific. One of the things that I really hope people are able to carry through, if you did just what you said, you read everything, you would see that the beginner box presents the town of Otari. Troubles in Otari, it kind of touches on some of the NPCs there, but the Otari Gazetteer in the back of the first adventure goes into a lot more detail about the town and the people that are in it and has kind of a subsystem for how you can sort of ally yourselves with different factions in town, more than one, certainly. You can have a lot of friends in town. But I can see that being a real add to some of the other ones. You're like, all right, well, we're going to go to, you know, we're going to talk to the people at the um, 
you know, the fishery, the Otari fishery. Oh, hey, I've read the adventure in the back matter. I know kind of what this person needs done and how to become, get their favored. Maybe I'll blend that in here and that'll tell this part of this story. I mean, so there's, there's a lot of very intentional crossover. You'll get a lot more out of it, having all of the different products together. Yeah. Okay. It, it sounds like it would be akin to trying to start uh, the Jade Regent and uh, Rise of the Rune Lords at the same time. It's like, well, they both start in Sandpoint. It's like, yeah, but they're, they're sort of doing different things. Uh, right. And it, it seemed to me a lot of that as well. So if you're done with the, the beginner box, it's like, okay, group, we can continue on. We can sort of pick up and shuffle into Abomination Vaults if we want to do a bunch of dungeon crawly stuff, or if we want to do a mix of adventures and we could do Trouble in Otari and see where we want to go. Yeah, we do actually think that there are probably people who are going to finish the beginner box and want to take their same characters into the adventure path. That's that's actually okay. The 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 math of how XP works will actually make that all even out. Um, they're sure they're a little, they're a little tougher, right? Their second level set of first level for mm. the upper level of the the uh, ruins, but that's not that's not bad necessarily. They sort of right. feel like they're in charge and. And things will, will quickly get harder for them. I know that if I were doing this, I intend, as soon as I've got it in my hands, to run the beginner box for my fam for my kids. And mm -hmm. I know full well that if I told them, oh, you know, I know you had a great time with Valoros. We're going to start another story now, and you have to play a different character. My son would be, oh, no, I'm not. I want this guy that hits me things with its sword and can raise my shield so I'm protected when things want to hit me back. So I wanna, I'm going to keep <laughs> playing this guy. So... Um, we that that's certainly doable in the, the the sort of the product spread that we have. Cool. I did have a question earlier, and I'm trying to recall what it was. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm curious since we because of you know they'd be second level coming out of the first one. I'm curious, what about you, Ron? Do you run especially with PF2 and its new XP system? Do you run XP when you run games, or do you run milestones? Ooh, this is that's a good question. Because the APs um, give you great points on when those milestones should be if you choose to go that route. Yes. I I love milestones. I love milestones so much that I bristled when the core rulebook came out with the default rule of counting XP and the optional rule of milestones. I thought those should be flipped. I really? thought the default rule should be when you have completed a, a certain amount of adventure with good guidelines for the GM, be about three evenings of adventure or about 12 different, uh, you know, encounters that were not, you know, 12 different non-pushover encounters. That's when people ought to hit a milestone in order to level up. Uh, and if you want to, you know, count every little XP piece, then here you go. Here's how you can. Um, but the world we're in is where you track XP. It turns out that that's an advantage for something like Abomination Vaults because, the XP tracking is an easier way to make sure that you know, oh, my heroes have done enough now because no party is going to be, we will go to the first level and we will absolutely clear it out even though we've seen three different ways to go down a level, right? Mm -hmm. And then yeah. we will go down exactly one level and we will clear, we clear absolutely everything, everything out. out. <laughs> yeah, That's, that's, uh, that's my party. They, are, do, they yeah. do that. Yeah. They, they <laughs> turned over every blasted stone in every layer of uh, Hell, um, Hell Night Hill. 
<laughs> well, if you've got, in that case, man, this is easy for you. Once yeah. they have completed level one, they're second level. <laughs> level two, they're third level. Uh, uh. But we do, we are including certain milestones because there are a lot of different factions going on. And it's uh, something like, well, once, once the heroes have defeated the head of the cult of the canker, they, mm-hmm. that's a milestone they ought to go up a level. Once they have defeated the head evil, you know, worm creature researcher, yeah, that's the point at which they ought to go up a level. Um, so there, there, are, there are both, but I think that the XP tracking is probably a more useful tool in Abomination Vaults. Wonderful. That's Although probably... I, my preference being milestones, I know that that's not everybody's. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is a thing that actually, even yeah. I can admit the right way, better way to do this to make sure that people sort of get their abilities without having to feel like they're way behind for a lot of it mm-hmm. or way ahead for a lot of it is the XP tracking. What's like James was saying about the Kingmaker uh, remake is that there are way more encounters um, than you would really need to level and stay up with the story that you can probably skip some things if they're not important to your party and you're, uh, you're doing okay on experience. And a sandbox adventure like this sometimes I think feels the same way. Like if you're doing great, but you know what? We never checked that one room way in the back yeah if the plot's advancing and you have a way forward and you can handle it you know there's no reason to go there but even if you did clear out absolutely everything and were sort of over provisioned on experience like you said the uh, the way the experience track works out is diminishing returns and so at some point uh what was worth you know 80 experience is now worth 60 experience and it's just it's you'll stay ahead of the curve and it won't be as big of a deal yeah yeah, it's sort of self-correcting math, and I really, mm-hmm. I really appreciate all the design thought that went into that. Um, there's also, it gives the GM some ability to be a lot more flexible too, right? If the heroes mm-hmm. are kicking down absolutely every door, and you've got, you know, you've got a group where there's, you know, there's there's six encounters with Morlocks in different rooms, and the heroes have blasted their way through four <laughs> of them. Are the last Morlocks going to stick around? Probably not. But having enemies just bail out of even fighting with the, the heroes, even though that could be reasonable activity, in a lot of adventures, the GM could be like, I but I don't want to lose them out on any XP that they might get. Mm-hmm. It's not, not so much a worry here. You can actually be a little more fluid and a little more, you know, frankly, realistic with some of the ways the dungeon denizens react to the heroes mm-hmm. being present. Yeah, they'll adjust. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, one thing that I think that obviously like you and I know about, but a lot of our audience might know not know, is what does developing an adventure path start to finish? What, is that, what does that look like from the developer's point of view? Oh, I've got ideas. How do you develop them? How do you sign off? Like, how does all that work? We've got, let me go, let me go through this then kind of quick. Sure. There's actually sort of three stages I feel like my, my job is in. The first stage is the outlining, where we come up with the high-level concept of what an adventure path is going to be like. Mm-hmm. We get sign-off of different stakeholders within the company, okay. and this is the point at which no nobody knows about it except people that are within Paizo, right? right. And we, it's actually, frankly, our place to make some maybe some stupid mistakes in how this is designed and have somebody else come in and go, no, that would actually be kind of dumb, right? You're, or this subsystem incentivizes the wrong behavior or something like that, right? That right. We, can, we can kind of bounce that around sort of freely internally. At mm-hmm. the same time, I'm looking at different types of um, uh, different authors who have sort of different, different skills to be able to put together. I'm kind of putting together my idea of who could do stuff for an adventure who could do stuff for the back of an adventure and who might be a good fit for that. And I'm kind of putting out feelers. Um, 
the or looking for people you know like like Vanessa would be like, who would write the whole adventure and the whole toolbox and every single monster. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking for that. Once I have the outline in good shape, and usually if you look at our version numbering, when you get an outline, it's up to like version five or six of, of overhauls before mm-hmm. any authors finally see it. Um, we get it to the authors for the writing. Um, and that's sort of the end of part one of development because I know the authors are doing their work. I'm on hand in order to answer questions, to go back and forth. Um, we, we might not have even yet announced that the, that the project is out, right? This is, this is currently, frankly, this is currently the stage I'm in with the adventure path that's coming after Fists of the Ruby Phoenix. Authors are working hard. The outline's been done, but my, my step is done. The mm-hmm. second point is the actual development this is the bulk of the work when the adventure authors are done and everything's in at this point we've probably already announced what it is um but what i do is i'll go through the adventure we've gotten in the habit of assigning all of the adventure authors to turn in their their work on the same date even though i'm going to be developing the last of the adventures much later what i need to be able to do is go through and read everything sort of start to finish. So I know the kind of stuff that's going to happen at the end that I can seed for it. Some of the stuff at the beginning in order to, to, to have ripple effects afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then actually digging in and making sure that all the right styles are applied and making changes to, you know, mesh with the earlier and later adventures uh, to make sure that the, the pagination is going to work. And this is the hardest part because there can be, there can be, awesome sections of an adventure like where you use for example one part of a dungeon to flood a whole other part of a dungeon that just don't have the words in the pagination to be able to do that and so what? you have to cut it and you get sad um the uh, i mean just to use an example out of you know anyway mm-hmm. um but that's actually where a lot of the de- work of the development is done and with with i i say that developers we improve things by one step, right? If we get something that's okay, we can make it good. If we get something good, we can make it great. And if we get something great, we can make it really shine. Um, and that's where this work is. Um, it's a lot of the, but a lot of the, the work I say is the hard decisions about, all right, well, what's gotta, what's gotta go, what's gotta be adjusted, what has to change because it's too similar to something before or after or, uh, or that kind of thing. Uh, where I establish everything that needs to be uh, illustrated and make uh, art briefs together to, to submit to our artists about what, what's going to be drawn, what the maps are going to look like. Um, and that's the bulk of the work. What that, that point ends when I pass the work off to the editors. Hmm. Um, and the, the space I'm at now, this is the space I'm at with Abomination Balls because I'm almost done with uh Vanessa with your adventure and I've already started on Steven's adventure uh James's adventure is already off to edit um but because I've got things in Steven's adventure I've already seen to make that I've already put into the earlier adventures and things that need to pay off sort of as we as we go along um that's that's where kind of putting the chunk of it is but once that's off to edit that's the end of phase two um the final phase which is which is really sort of neat and easy going through answering editor questions is when it comes back from edit to layout 
to how it's going to look on the page, the developers have to do what's called copy fit, which is just make sure all the words are going to be there. If part of it has been badly overwritten or underwritten, this is where I have to cut even more or add a little bit back in order to make sure that it flows around the images that look, how it looks on the screen is how it's going to look on the page. I need to make sure that works. That that's probably, that's probably the most fun, I think of it, copy fitting because that's where it's kind of a real project to me. That's where I'm seeing what it's going to look like with all the page borders and the art. This is what people are going to see and love and enjoy. And then once that's all done with uh, the end of phase three is when it goes off to print, it gets all the internal approvals. Everybody looks at it to make sure that it looks great. It does get another editorial pass in there actually. So we have editors that look at everything a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it and goes off And they find room for the flooding dungeon. Yeah, <laughs> which which they might, right? It may be, it may be, it may be that you know, as a developer, I might have taken that text and instead of just deleted it, I might have put it in a whole other file that, given the ability to add it back in, I can easily cut and paste it back. For example, for example, um, <laughs> but you, oh but gosh, the uh, but hope. anyway, the uh, um. Yeah, this is, I've been on the other side of this before. I remember being so sad with Crystal about losing this Medusa encounter. There just wasn't the space for The next time, I'll tell you, the next time I wrote for her, I'm like, I'm putting that damn Medusa encounter back in. So you're going to see it again. You're going to find room for it this time. So um, there will always be dungeons to flood, even if this one doesn't get flooded. Um, Now with the, uh, with the beginners box coming out, uh, a big push right now, bringing a lot of new players into Pathfinder. And I'm guessing, you know, now that Pathfinder second edition is a year old, the APG's out, it's getting a lot of hype. And a lot of people are talking about how good of state the game is in right now. We're going to see a lot of new GMs. Do you have any advice for these new GMs who um, are going to be jumping in to running an adventure path for the first time? Like, what advice would you give a GM who's going to try to run Abomination Vault or Ruby Phoenix? Or what do they need to do? I, I think that ideally a new GM is going to at least skim all of the adventures, right? To get a sense of everything that's going on. That's, that's a piece of advice that I know is frankly unrealistic. And it's unrealistic <laughs> because the people that run our games fall, fall into two types. They tend to be people who just don't have the time to come up with their own homebrew setting. And they know that we give them great stories and they just want to use the great stories we give them. Well, those people don't have time to sit and read through, you know, six or even three volumes and make notes ahead of time. They just want to sort of take it and run. Um, the second type of GM tends to be people that really like Galarian. They really like our setting and the plots that we do and the stories that we tell. They're very excited. And because they're so excited, they're not going to wait for volumes two or three or four or five or six. They're going to take the first one and they're going to start running it. So yeah, that, that's so me. That's, <laughs> so, so there's a, so both people, the advice of maybe you should skim the whole thing. Doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't work. So and this has um, bit me in the butt more than once, like totally <laughs> playing an NPC completely counter. Oh, she's, she's just the, the little old lady who's real frustrated. And she's read in the library next book, the evil necromancer, which was the little old lady that I did not play <laughs> necromancy time. enough. Ah! Yeah. Well, this is, we want to help you. This is part of the reason that we've got 
uh, the general attitude of the due date for everything is on the same time. Is So mm-hmm. when I see the evil necromancer lady in volume four, when I first present her to you as a GM, I'm able to let you know, hey, by the way, she's no good, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's incumbent upon us to be trying to help you. But one of the things, knowing that that's skimming through everything is maybe not what people are going to do. What I think that the, the two important things to do is to get a good sense of the story that you're going to be running at least for the first few sessions, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, at least go in detail to the first two chapters, whatever mm-hmm. you're writing. And second, keep in mind the players that you've got. You're not telling the story that we put on a page. You're mm-hmm. telling the story that you have with all of your friends using the words we put on the page as a basis. So if you've got somebody for example, going into Abomination Vaults and you've got everybody that wants to play a whole bunch of dwarves and they're all about reclaiming treasure for their dwarven <laughs> homeland, right? Mm-hmm. Then you know full well that when you get to the adventure about what the different light levels are, skip it. Your, your players don't care about that. You want to maybe pay attention to what are the different treasures that are there and how could they work? And, you know, mm-hmm. maybe this plus one rapier they're going to find is actually a plus one battle axe because you know that the dwarves are going to love that kind of thing mm-hmm. so those are two points so make sure you're at least ahead to know the narrative beats you're going to be hitting but to do so with your players in mind i also i often hear from a lot of experienced gms uh that i think have really a, a wrong outlook on this where they look at these these pre-written adventure paths especially the adventure paths because they're so long therefore they think there must be an infinite railroad on this to uh and no room for creativity i've run five six adventure paths all the way through now and i can't think of a single one of them that i haven't made a detour or had to customize or just taken it com- just added like a ton of custom stuff that for my players into it. Like, do you agree that GMs, especially experienced GMs should feel free to like take the scalpel to this and make it theirs? I think even novice GMs ought to do that. And the hardest thing that we have is to communicate to them just because we're putting the words on the page does not make it a gospel truth that you must follow to the letter or you have fallen to heresy, right? (laughs) It is what we're doing is we are putting together a framework to suggest a neat story. And if a neat story for you and your group is going to require something else, even some dramatic changes about who the main villain is or, mm-hmm. you know, what the, what the motivation for the players are, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, some players aren't going to be motivated by here's the right thing, go do the right thing, you know, oh, give yeah. me something else, right? Mm-hmm. Swap also, the treasures in and out. I mean, that's, there's so many changes that you can make and ought to be making to make it your own. Absolutely. There was a, um, a, a for the old D&D 3.5, there was a once great book called The Dungeon Master's Guide 2 that had a piece of advice that I think is super relevant to Pathfinder fans that I use all the time, which is that there's no way on earth I'm going to ever be able to run every one of these adventures that I bought from you all. Like, I am giving it my level best. I'm gaming well, not, four times not- a week. I'm mean, not with that attitude. Come on, step it up. <laughs> I'm gaming four times. I'm GMing four games a week, man. That's a lot uh, of GMing. Okay, I'm trying my best. And you all keep putting out society adventures like every freaking month, too, on top of this. But, like, for instance, mine, if, if, even if you're not going to run it, 
they're super worth reading because then you can just mine them for parts because there's been a point like in age of ashes there was a jungle trek and like there was a point where i'm just supposed to roll on these random encounters and i'm like you know it would be much better that big red demon dinosaur thing from pfs i, I i'm gonna put that they're gonna fight the big demon red dinosaur thing from pfs and and that's gonna replace all these random encounter rolls yep and then I've you all been, made I've... a wonderful monster and map that i got to use <laughs> There we go. You're welcome. No, I've done a much of the same. I think that my Adventure Path players have all played more modules than they ever realized, right? Mm -hmm. Because I will take a module that kind of makes sense for a region and weave it into the story. And then at the end, they're like, huh, that Adventure Path chapter was kind of long, maybe, or <laughs> something like that, without realizing, you know, throwing, um, there's an old module, Broken Chains, about rescuing slaves in Catapesh that I threw mm -hmm. into my Legacy of Fire game, for example. And they thought that was actually part of the Adventure Path. They didn't know. And um, the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, beyond, is it beyond the Fell Knight Path, the one that the Realm of the Fell Knight Queen. That oh, that's the, such the a good one. That is so good. Easily throw in I mine it. Yeah. I mine it for boss encounters all the time, especially yeah. for any of. I have. I run a home game in in Andoran, so like that's just right on the back door, and so yeah. good to mine that. Oh, we are running out of time, Ron. Uh, this has been mm. a joy to speak with you, uh, and also. We've we've got one more panel to uh, to present right after this. You all are going to want to stay put for it. We are going to have Ask the Experts Starfinder RPG Q and A, and you really really want to listen to that because Starfinder may be one of the best games uh, I've ever played. I love it to pieces. I might it, no offense meant to Ron, but it actually might be my favorite game you make. Uh, no, that's no that's okay because <laughs> when you you mentioned earlier about no direction. I'm on the No Direction Network uh -huh. in a Starfinder game. So yes! <laughs> and the Digital Divination, right. which is where we talk all things Starfinder. So my contribution to No Direction mm -hmm. is on the Starfinder side. I love writing mm -hmm. for it. I love the game oh, as yeah. well. You're not hurting my feelings one bit. Yeah. Are so, there flooding dungeons on the Starfinder side? Never mind. You know, I withdraw yeah, the question. Uh -huh. I wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we would like to thank very much Paizo for helping us. This isn't the end of our, our presentations, but this is the last uh, panels that we're going to have some No Direction hosts on. So we want to thank Paizo again for putting to this together. I want to thank all my crew for the incredible job that they've done helping us get this organized and i know that i could count on you v if i didn't have you in my backup slot i would have been pulling my hair out long ago um oh. we want to thank sirenscape for the wonderful music we want to thank all of our actual play partners like roll for combat to perception glass cannon um and upcoming dragons and things and uh, did i miss one i know i missed one uh for putting on some fantastic material and, and play after the games and also, we want to thank all of you all for being here with us and, and chatting with us and keeping us company. Uh, coming up next, like I said, is the Ask the Expert Starfinder RPG Q&A. After that, it's going to be more Starfinder goodness as dragons and things go into space. Things in space. You want to make sure you tune into that. Uh, we are going to be signing out. And if you want to follow more of us on no direction and get like what you're seeing right now this is basically what we put out every day over on no direction uh no direction podcast.com um you're going to see lots of us lots of the Pazo crew and in fantastic blog content fantastic podcast content fantastic actual play content all the time and we will see you all in just a few minutes thank you very much mm -hmm.
No Direction Network's PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar coverage was made possible by the KDCon team, consisting of Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param, Ryan Costello, Alexander Agunas, Monica Marlowe, Vanessa Hoskins, Dustin Knight, and Andrew Sturtevant. For more great Pathfinder, Starfinder, and other RPG news, reviews, podcasts, and blogs, check out nodirectionpodcast.com.